Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. We are always striving to give you more than we promised, listener. <laughs> We're always striving to over-deliver. Mm. And what started as a three, maybe four-part series on Charles Manson and the murders that spun out of his family cult um, has spun into four, uh, and then definitely five, and now we're we're almost certainly looking at a six-parter from what I hear, Carrie. And I'm not criticizing. I'm very excited about all this. You know, the more you get into this story, the more you realize that it touches upon so many things, not just not just um, the this case and Charles Manson uh, and his victims and his family, but also so much about the '60s and so much about. America that really influenced what we're living through today. And so it's just such an expansive topic and one that is, I mean, it's it's hard to figure that out at the outset, I think, until you make all the connections. And so, yes, it has expanded and I apologize, but I think it's all very worthwhile information when it comes to this story. No apology necessary. I'm really excited to get into it. And uh, this, I, I guess this is going to be where, I mean, things were already getting pretty culty last week, uh, but now is when they're really going to get sinister and, dare I say, murderous? Yeah. So I think we're, we'll probably, you know, do this series for at least one or two more episodes, uh, in, you know, additional to this one. And then it's going to be our next show anniversary, Sean. Oh, my God. Yeah, so maybe then we take a little celebratory break. We let you sort of catch up and ruminate in the story of Manson, and then we come back at you for spooky season with something completely different. Um, that sounds really good. I have uh, I have some thoughts, mm-hmm. and I don't want to spoil anything, but it, it was uh, I, I've partly been inspired by. Uh, all these mosquitoes, all these bloodsuckers running around in the air mm. have maybe inspired a Tackling little... Tackling the story of Lyme disease, are we? Um, mosquitoes don't spread Lyme. They spread encephalitis and malaria, but th- th- that's neither here nor there. Oh, brother. <laughs> um, but yeah, so maybe, maybe, a, maybe a couple of weeks of bloodsuckers coming up mm. uh, in the advent of spooky season. But I, I don't want to spoil anything. Okay, well let's get let's get back to these people who suck and caused a lot of blood to happen. And Charlie Manson is a um, an energy vampire. That's oh, for sure. Spoiled it. There we go. <laughs> so in early 1969, the news was seemingly in sync with Charlie Manson's preachings that a race war would begin soon. Uh, which he called Helter Skelter, as we've talked about. And so Helter Skelter was nigh. I mean, it looked like it was it was about to happen. Black Panther leaders Bunchy Carter and John Huggins were gunned down on the UCLA campus during a debate about the school's Black Studies program. Civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy had been murdered. So it seemed like a real turning point, and Charlie began acquiring all the guns possible, reasoning that the family would need them when this imminent helter-skelter would begin. So this is the next stage of cult escalation. I mean, Jonestown, um, uh, especially Waco, you you start stockpiling weapons. Yes, the building of a weapons cache is classic escalation of cult activity. And as you've mentioned, it's one that most often ends in violence and destruction. So they have all these guns. um, They're sort of hidden around Spawn Ranch, like a sick array of Easter eggs. And they, they're, you know, trading cars and drugs for them. And they also begin assembling a fleet of dune buggies because they reasoned that they would need them to tackle the difficult Death Valley terrain when they escaped out there to wait out the race war. Uh, so they're riding around on dune buggies. They're selling guns. <laughs> this is like a very lame Sons of Anarchy, isn't mm-hmm. it? Well, scored funny by, you me- mentioned biker gangs, Sean. Scored by Charlie's terrible music <laughs> instead of uh, Katie Seagal covers of, uh, you know, Johnny Cash songs or whatever. <laughs> so 
the parts for these dune buggies were particularly expensive and money, of course, became an issue because none of them had jobs. So Charlie decided after a couple of false starts that dealing drugs would be the answer to these problems. And he ended up connecting with the Straight Satans, which was a lesser biker gang in the Hell's Angels mold. Yeah, the, uh, the gay Satans, ironically, <laughs> were, were the dominant gang in the area. Well, they were called Straight Satans because they worked straight day jobs, primarily. Um, straight being the term for, like, normal normal life, I yeah. guess, back yeah. in the 60s. Yeah, just totally straight. I'm Satan. <laughs> How you doing? Um, these straight Satans enjoyed riding out to Spawn Ranch to romp with the family girls and would usually exchange help with mechanical needs in these cases. You all, you all want to have a romp? <laughs> Charlie felt they would be the perfect partners to have in the drug game. Um, one straight Satan member, Danny DiCarlo, even became so enamored with the family re- life that he became more of a family member than a straight Satan over time. Oh, Danny will... Daniel, partner with you, Mr. Manson. I was never that straight to begin with. Who's this? Who's this character? This is the straight Satan. Oh, he's overcompensating. The, the straight Satan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the union with the Satans would come with its own problems. Quote, and whenever I quote here, unless otherwise said, it is from the book Manson. Uh, by Jeff Gwynn. That's been our main source for this series. And um, there are a few others that I will mention. But anytime I I launch into a quote unbidden, it's from (laughs) Manson. Quote, something that Charlie either didn't suspect or else ignored because he couldn't do much about it was the biker's habit of passing hard drugs to family members. Charlie allowed weed almost any time and LSD in monitored doses. But the straight Satans regularly indulged in whatever they could score, often speed, which often caused paranoia and violent tendencies in users. Susan and Tex, in particular, liked the extra goodies. Mm. The paranoia didn't extend only to Tex and Susan, though. Quote, Charlie was getting edgier, too. He was under tremendous pressure. There was the new business arrangement with the straight Satans to monitor, the challenge of keeping the family convinced about the imminence of Helter Skelter, and the ongoing frustration of trying to make contact with, remember who, Terry Melcher, his last hope for a record deal. So that's still going on. Yeah, so Charlie's stressed. Charlie is stressed. Now, you would think it's kind of pimp 101 is get get <laughs> Oh, he tried he tried that. That was when I say false starts, that was one of his false starts, but you know, it's it's a bummer, man. I don't know. It didn't really work out for him. No, I just mean because of his pimping education in prison, you would think getting the girls hooked on hard drugs would have been one of his first moves. Yeah, it's surprising that it wasn't. Um, I don't know. I don't know. So to harness his and the family's nervous energy, Charlie began to assemble small squads of his followers for what he called creepy crawls, in which the object of the sick game, I guess, was to silently enter the houses of sleeping residents without anyone inside waking up. Okay, this is a bad sign. I'm just gonna just gonna raise the red flag. We keep on escalating. So during one of these creepy crawls, a family member or family members would quietly move furniture and other items around the house from their usual places. And then they would just sort of quietly leave. So this is sort of like, it's it's really an, an early version of punked, especially because they're in Hollywood. More like psychological torment. More like yeah. funny games than, than punked, maybe? <laughs> yes. The film Funny Games, not the concept of funny games. No, although it was probably funny for Tex on all that speed. The residents would wake up in the morning and know someone had been there in their home while they were at their most vulnerable. Quote, most of the family's creepy crawls took place near Spawn Ranch, but sometimes they ranged all the way into upscale neighborhoods. Once even creepy crawling the Bel Air home of the mamas and the papas, uh, the Papas's, John and Michelle Phillips. So they were lucky to escape with their lives, I guess. It was a great mind game to play on people, and the family enjoyed it. They were also proving to themselves that they could get into any house, anywhere, anytime. 
Terry Melcher's final, final, super final rejection of Charlie Manson began on May 18th, 1969. So last week, Charlie had that whole party for Terry where Terry was going to come out and hear him play. And he didn't show up. And he had the the girls holding fla- throwing flower petals and a banner and everything. Yeah, it was real embarrassing really for Charlie. Really cringy stuff for Charlie. That wasn't the end of it. He hasn't taken the hint yet. He still has some kind of hope, I guess, in a weird Charlie Manson sort of way. He thinks, oh, that guy probably just forgot. I think he was willing to overlook it for the promise of stardom, which he just knew was going to be the end game once Terry finally just, you know, understood what he needed to do. So after the humiliating no-show, Terry finally made good on his word and arrived at the ranch to hear Charlie play. And Charlie did. Quote, taking Charlie aside, Terry said polite things about several songs being interesting. He knew a guy, Mike Deasy, who, besides being a great session guitarist, had his own recording van and liked going on site to record Indian tribal music. Melcher said that he'd come back with Deasy, who might be interested in what Charlie was doing. Meanwhile, he gave Charlie 50 bucks, all the cash he had with him, to buy hay for the ranch horses or whatever the family needed. So kind of like a, a, a pity 50, if you will. Melcher left immediately after handing over the money. The family gathered around Charlie. What did Melcher say? Didn't Charlie get his record deal? Charlie had to tell his followers something. So he announced that Terry Melcher had given him money. Charlie made sure that the family thought it was in the nature of a signing bonus. Yeah, $50 signing bonus. Yeah. Yeah, and he gave me this uh, this dead skunk, too. Look at this. <laughs> the ploy worked. So far as Charlie's followers were concerned, the audition had been a tremendous success, as of course it had to be, since he was infallible. Terry Melcher left Spawn Ranch that day, feeling certain that Charlie Manson had nothing to offer musically. And I mean, for like in any cult situation, these people have given up every, which is whatever lives they had to commit themselves fully to the idea of this guy at this point. Mm -hmm. And you hate admitting you're wrong, especially when you've bet everything. Mm -hmm. And so any opportunity to continue believing, you'll just, you'll just keep taking. So yeah, $50 signing bonus. Sure. I believe it. Now, Melcher really did talk to this guy, Mike Deasy, and they agreed to go to Spawn on June 6th. So Charlie had almost three weeks to build up his hopes yet again. And during those three weeks, Charlie put everyone back to work on Helter Skelter. The men arrived on June 6th. uh, Greg Jacobson was with them. Charlie performed his songs. And, quote, in a spectacularly wrong-headed attempt at hospitality, someone slipped DZ LSD, and he suffered a horrendously bad trip. Melcher and Jacobson had to get him home, and as they guided him toward their car, with Charlie walking hopefully alongside them, and the rest of the family trailing along behind... <laughs> so did you like it, man? Hey, dude, what'd you think of that last one? So I call awkward. it fecal disaster. Veteran Hollywood stuntman Randy Starr, who often hung out at Spawn, staggered up. He was dressed in all black, belligerently drunk, and waving an old-fashioned six-gun. Like Yosemite Sam (laughs) is coming out of the... uh... Charlie, faced with the end of his rock star dreams, screeched at Randy, Don't draw on me, motherfucker! And began, as Jacobson recalled, to beat the shit out of Star right in front of us. (laughs) Melcher was disgusted. I love how that almost plays out as if this is something that happens all the time. (laughs) <laughs> like, I've, I've told you, don't draw on me, motherfucker. <laughs> right. So uh, the guys left in a hurry after that, probably over the phone afterward. Um, Terry told Charlie that it was it. He said, you're good, but I wouldn't know what to do with you. Yeah, but what'd you think of uh, Queen Jingle Plumber? That's my best song, man. <laughs> and with that, Charlie Manson's dream of becoming a rock star more famous than the Beatles was essentially over. Quote, Cherry Melcher, Charlie told his followers, had promised him a contract and then reneged on the deal. The money was a down payment. Melcher's heinous act was just one more piece of the apocalyptic puzzle fitting neatly in place. 
just as Charlie had foretold, Helter Skelter was coming down fast. So uh, did he, uh, I mean, he probably didn't have to with most of these people at this point. Did Did he offer any justification for how... Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher's a white guy, right? Mm-hmm. How is this part of the coming race war? Hmm. There's no real way that it fits into the race war, but it sort of fit into Charlie's paranoia and like his ramping up of anger. Um, so even the white establishment is out to get him. Yes. Because he knows the truth, even though he's ostensibly on their side. Yes, um, and after Terry Melcher's turn down, family member Leslie Van Houten uh, said of the time, Charlie, quote, stopped pretending he wasn't angry. He was mad all of the time. That must have been really fun for the acid trips. Just angry Charlie yelling all the time. Yeah, and though he kept it from the family, he did try a few more desperate times to become a star. Um, Bobby, not, not with Terry. No, Bobby Beausoleil pitched some of Charlie's songs to Frank Zappa. Uh, Gypsy met uh, the producer of The Doors, Paul Rothschild, and played him tapes of Charlie's recording session from 1968. Zappa's a little closer to Charlie's style, but (laughs) only in facial hair. Yeah. And Charlie even performed some of his songs for Cass Elliot of The Mamas and the Papas, uh, and they all passed, which just made Charlie angrier. He didn't, I hope he didn't mention the creepy crawlies when he played for Mama Cass. That would have been awkward, I'm sure. Uh, the family's approach to Helter Skelter began to grow even darker. They started to steal from the houses and not just move things around. Charlie learned where Terry Melcher lived in Malibu. And again, this leads kind of some confusion to if he knew about Cielo Drive or not, or if he thought this was like another house of Terry's. But he sent a creepy crawl team there, and they stole a telescope off his porch, um, intending the theft as a sort of message to Melcher that Charlie would always find him. Okay, so he has, I mean, he's been told in person that Terry doesn't live at the now Polanski house, and he has sent people to Terry's current house. So there's no way he thinks Terry lives there. Yeah, I, I think he probably didn't actually think Terry lived there, but I don't know. It it all gets very convoluted with how he, spoiler alert, convinces Tex Watson that it was his idea to go to Cielo Drive. Because the really interesting thing about Charles Manson to me is that, uh, I'm not saying he seems smart, because he doesn't seem smart necessarily, but he doesn't seem that crazy. He seems Mm -hmm. like he has purpose behind everything that he does. Well, he said to the family members, if you ever get arrested or whatever, don't tell them about Halter Skelter or just tell them I'm crazy. You know, like he had even a fallback to that, which was to pretend he was crazy. And I think he continued that. Yeah. He's been doing it since, uh, since um, what? High school. Yeah. So Terry Melcher didn't even realize that the family was behind the telescope theft. He just thought someone stole his telescope. Um, Charlie began suggesting that the creepy crawls could be ratcheted up even more. Maybe they would start kidnapping people or tied people up in their homes and and frighten them to death. Frighten them to death? Mm -hmm. That's a Charles quote, isn't it? Some, yeah, I mean, yeah. And he, he also would qu- start to question his followers, would you die for me? And under their constant influence of drugs and, and Charlie's preaching and brainwashing, they all insisted they would. Um, some of them started to get more nervous that summer. Leslie Van Houten began to push back on some things. And so Charlie put her in his dune buggy and drove to the top of the Santa Susana Mountains And he parked and told her, if you want to leave me, jump. Basically, jump off a cliff. Wow. And, of course, she didn't want to, so she stayed. Okay. So, Charlie had nothing else going for him anymore. And it was time to show the family that Helter Skelter was happening. The time is now. They have to take action and escape to Death Valley before they became casualties of the race war. To fully prepare, Charlie needed more money. And the family wasn't exactly rolling in it. So they decided to expand their drug trade because it was going oh so well. (laughs) 
in a way, I guess. So he asked Tex Watson to get in touch with Luella, a girl he had lived with in L.A. that Charlie knew sold drugs. And what are they selling? Are they selling like speed and the stuff that Charlie doesn't want his people taking? Or are they selling acid? They're not selling anything, Sean. Oh, this is like the old, the high school kids selling oregano in a bag. There's not even oregano, okay? So Charlie told Tex to tell Luella they had 25 kilos of marijuana to sell and to find a buyer who would pay up front for it. And she did. She found a buyer who would pay $2,500 up front. But there was no weed. I mean, there, there was weed on the ranch, obviously, but there wasn't any for sale, and they certainly didn't have 25 kilos of it. <laughs> but this didn't stop Tex from taking the money, which he immediately gave to Charlie. And the buyer, a large black man named Bernard Crow, received none of the drugs that he paid for. And we're bringing his race into it only because of the helter-skelter implications? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Crow, commonly known as Lots of Papa, because there was lots of him. <laughs> well, I love Lots of Papa. <laughs> he realized he'd been swindled almost immediately, and he called Spawn Ranch trying to track down Tex to get what was owed to him. Charlie got on the phone and said, like, sorry, man, Tex has disappeared. You know, what are you going to do? And lots of Papa said, well, that's too bad for you guys. I'm a member of the Black Panthers. And if you guys don't get me either my $2,500 back or my 25 kilos of weed, the Panthers are going to come to Spawn Ranch on my order and slaughter everyone there. It was Charlie's helter-skelter nightmare come true. Yeah, but that's also, isn't that kind of good for Charlie? As long as he can avoid being slaughtered along with all of his followers right now. Isn't it, isn't it great for the belief factor? You might think that, but there's one wrinkle to this. Um, Lots of Papa was not a Black Panther. Well, yeah, and, and I, I, you know, listen, I'm not an expert on <laughs> Black Panther history, but I, I don't think their business was enforcing small-time drug deals. No, but Charlie thought it was, and Charlie didn't know that Lots of Papa wasn't a Panther. All he knew was that a Black Panther was coming with his crew to kill him and the entire family. So Helter Skelter was on. It was time to act, or at least appear to act. So Charlie went to Lots of Papa's home with family member T.J. Walliman, ostensibly, or, you know, what he told Lots of Papa was to give him what he wanted. Charlie told T.J. that he had a plan. He had a gun tucked into the back of his pants, and on his signal, Walliman was to pull the gun out of the back of Charlie's pants and shoot Lots of Papa. Surprise, surprise. Almost a diehard. Yes. Spoilers for diehard. Oh, uh, no bullets. <laughs> As, as usual, uh, Charlie wanted someone else to do the dirty work. And TJ didn't want to do that dirty work at the sight of the enormous Lots of Papa and his two boys with him. Well, sure, you're gonna, it's going to take two clips to take him down. <laughs> well, he chickened out, and Charlie ended up pulling the gun himself, with Walliman later telling Tex that the pistol had misfired on the first try, but worked on the second, with Charlie shooting Lots of Papa right in the chest. Charlie brandished the gun at the other two drug dealers while he and TJ made their escape, fleeing back to Spawn. Almost as soon as he arrived, TJ then fled the ranch, fearful of Charlie's anger and finally understanding what the man was really capable of. Oh, I would be more fearful of uh, the guys who work for lots of Papa who also still want that money. Well, Charlie was, was able to both brag to his followers that he had just blown away a Black Panther and also say that, yes, any moment a Black Panther hit squad might show up at the ranch to exact their revenge. Here's the thing, and here's something Charlie didn't realize till much later. Lots of Papa didn't die. There was lots of him, and a bullet <laughs> to the chest didn't do it. But Charlie didn't know that, and that would become a factor later on. But at this point, the family's es uh, paranoia escalated, and they began armed lookouts to defend themselves from the obvious threat. Family member Gypsy said in an interview decades later, quote, It wasn't peace and love and hippies anymore. It was almost like an army. For Charlie, it was the perfect time to convince the family to leave for Death Valley, but he would need more money to do it. Yeah, convincing people to go to a place called Death Valley. <laughs> You're going to need even more acid, Charlie. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Dennis Wilson was an obvious target to try and get money from. Whether, Still? Yeah, I mean, they knew he had money. That was basically it. 
However, Charlie couldn't really track him down. Um, he was Dennis was already on his journey from temporary home to temporary home, trying to outrun his demons and maybe Charlie himself. Um, but Charlie did find out where he was staying a couple times, though never when Dennis was present, but he was sure to put fear into him anyway. Creepy crawlies. Yes. At one place, Charlie left a note for Dennis reading, you can't get away from me. And at another, he simply left a bullet. I know this seems sinister, but those were both just Charlie leaving him song lyrics. <laughs> well, no words were necessary to explain what the bullet meant. And I think that's why Dennis Wilson was so traumatized even years and years later. Um, he had been like psychologically tortured by Charlie Manson. So with Dennis out of the equation, because they literally just couldn't really find him, Charlie turned to the next person that the family both knew and knew had money, though certainly not as much as a rock star. And this was Gary Hinman. Now, some family members claim that Charlie and or the group committed up to 35 murders in the time they were together, making it likely that if the number was correct, they had already killed by the time the unfortunate Gary met his end. However, these sources are unreliable because they're the family or Charlie Manson. Uh And only nine killings have been actually traced to the family with evidence to back them up. The first official murder, because lots of Papa survived, would be that of the family's former friend, Gary Hinman. Uh, Now, Charlie knew that Gary had a couple of cars, and he was currently planning a trip to Japan, so he reasoned he must have money if he's planning this vacation. Quote, it was time for Gary to demonstrate his loyalty to the family by either joining, in which case all of his possessions, including his bank account, would become Charlie's, or else by handing over whatever money he had. Bobby Beausoleil provided the perfect excuse to shake down Hinman. Now, Bobby, if you remember, was the attractive actor hippie guy who lived with Gary for a time, and he originally introduced him to the family. But Bobby was too smart to fall in completely, right? Well, I wouldn't say too smart, but he was um, too headstrong, I would say. Oh, was he the guy who gave John C. Riley's voice? Oh, I like this. (laughs) Oh, you got more of that? No, that was the guy who became the second in command. Yes, yes, him. Quote, Beausoleil had just paid Gary $1,000 for a 1,000 tabs of mescaline. He'd gotten the money from the straight Satans who planned to have a party with the drugs. But after oh, we'll s- have a party. <laughs> Your voices are so strange. After sampling the goods, the Satans claimed the batch was tainted. They were furious and demanded Beausoleil give them back their money, and he prepared to confront Hinman. Charlie thought that Beausoleil's demand ought to not only include the Satans' $1,000, but additional money to help fund the family's helter-skelter desert flight. Nobody can taste taint like the <laughs> the good Satan. What are they called? The good straight Satans? Satans. The straight Satans. If nothing else, Hinman owned those two cars. Their pink slips would be worth something. Bobby was never a real member of the family, as we previously stated, but He had similar interests to Charlie. Neither of them wanted to piss off the Satans, and both of them needed money. So Bobby didn't mind Charlie tagging along for the shakedown. No, Charlie's a stable guy, straight shooter. What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, the plan is in place, and um, Gary's about to receive a very, very unlucky visit from Bobby Beausoleil and members of the family. Uh, Two varies. Feel sinister for Gary. We'll talk about how very bad it was for him after the break. I didn't mean to rhyme. That feels disrespectful. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. 
Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Welcome back. When last we left you, Charlie Manson and Bobby Beausoleil were on their way to um, extract a little bit of money that they felt they were owed by Gary Hinman. Well, that they were going to claim they felt they were owed by by Gary Hinman. Um, Carrie, I can only imagine, we sort of presaged this at the uh, end of the last block, Charlie coming along is probably not good news for Gary. No, certainly not. And he didn't come along initially, but he would arrive... In um in style, we would uh, we could say later on. Oh, on Friday, July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty nine, family member Bruce Davis drove Bobby, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins over to Gary's home. Bobby had a gun and a knife. Gary invited the group in, and that's when Bobby demanded the thousand dollars. Gary refused. Uh, he said there must have been a mistake or the Satans were trying to hustle them. The mescaline he'd sold Bobby to sell to the Satans had been perfectly fine. They were probably just trying to get some extra money. Bobby ordered Susan to hold Gary at gunpoint while he tossed the house for any valuable items they could give to the Satans in lieu of the $1,000. Do they already know this is a murder at this point? No, I don't think they're expecting it to turn into what it turned into. But, uh, good timing, Sean, during this standoff, Gary tried to wrestle the gun from Susan, prompting Bobby to jump in to help her subdue him. The gun went off, but didn't hit anyone, and the bullet lodged under the sink. Bobby, much stronger than Gary, was able to wrestle him back under control and began to beat him and demand all the money he had. Gary said he didn't have any, but he reluctantly agreed to sign over the pink slips to both of his cars, which in total were worth, together, more than $1,000. Bobby was satisfied, but Charlie's needs hadn't yet been factored into the equation. So he called Charlie at the ranch, explaining that though he'd beaten Gary to a pulp, he still denied having any money to give. Charlie didn't believe that, and so just before midnight, Bruce Davis drove Charlie to Gary's house. And Charlie had his sword with him. Sorry, what? He had gotten a sword in a sort of roundabout sort of way from the head of the straight Satans as return on uh, something else. So he loved his little sword. He had a little scabbard built into his dune buggy for it. And uh, he liked to travel around with Do it. What? This is an aspect I didn't know about at all. Mm-hmm. Really colors. The, it really adds some color. Um, do we know what kind of sword? Is it a katana? Is he Uma Thurman? You know, you know what? I'm, I didn't think you'd ask the kind of sword, so I haven't noted that yet, but you, I will... You didn't think I would ask what kind of sword? You know, it was foolish of me. It was foolish. Is it a replica of Glamdring, you know? I know it had a scabbard. That's all That's all I've, I've noted here. It's a Gandalf sword. Anyway. Yeah, so Gary told Charlie when he arrived that he didn't understand what was happening. Gary said he had always been a friend to the family. Why were they doing this to him? It, to him, it seemed very much out of the blue. Charlie responded by swinging his sword, slashing Gary's ear almost in half. I'm just going to picture it as, you know, the, you know, the Cloud Strife Buster Sword from uh, the really the Final big Fantasy one? VII. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. As the blood poured, Charlie told Gary he'd better give Bobby everything he had, and then Charlie left to return to Spawn Ranch. So he came, cut his ear in half, and left. All that weekend, Bobby continued to beat Gary while the girls pled with him to just hand over the money and end his suffering. By well into Sunday, now they arrived on Friday, Gary still insisted he simply had no money to give them. And he probably didn't. Who keeps that much money in their house, you know? So Bobby would periodically call Charlie to report on updates, and at one point... 
Gary told Bobby he would call the police whenever they finally left. And this was the breaking point for Charlie Manson. That's not a good thing to tell. I think he's just so out of it and in pain. And he's probably saying anything he can at this point. Hey, I would I would really like you guys to let me go. And to make you do that, I'm going to tell you that as soon as you do, you're going to jail. I don't think he was making sense to himself at that point. So Charlie realized that if he were arrested, um, the family's other drug deals may be discovered and in turn his, what he thought, murder of lots of Papa. And during the final phone call on Sunday, Bobby told Charlie, quote, he got his ear hacked off and he'll go to police. Charlie responded, you know what to do. And it seems uh, Bobby caught his drift. Yeah. Bobby Beausoleil stabbed the broken, beaten Gary Hinman multiple times with his knife. Gary, whose only crime was just being nice to a bunch of weirdos. As he lay dying, Bobby dipped his hand in Gary's blood and pressed a crude paw print onto the wall, the symbol of the Black Panthers. Charlie had apparently told Bobby that they might as well kill two birds with one stone with the murder and implicate the Panthers while they did it his reasoning was kind of like if people catch wind that the Panthers have killed a white guy, then the race war is going to start. Yeah. I think he's always trying to kick off the race war. I don't remember which episode we've done. We've done a lot of episodes, but I remember one murder where someone was cutting someone's fingers off to try to implicate the Yakuza. Yeah. And, um, Charlie, at this point, you know, the family was getting restless. Why haven't the Panthers or why haven't, Black people as a whole started the race war and Charlie would eventually just start saying, and of course this is his very (laughs) stupid and wrong opinion. He he would say, you know, they're, they're, they're too dumb to start the race war. They we need to help them out basically. Well, yeah, but wasn't the race war, but like, isn't the race war an apocalyptic, like bad thing? And you guys need to. It's not bad because they're going to find the bottomless pit and they're going to to ride it out and they're going to come back and they're going to rule the world afterward. So it's kind of good for them and it's good for the world. Okay, but so black people win this race war, they enslave whites, they take over society. But then they will defer to the family. When they come out? Yes. Like, oh, you guys, uh, you guys, well, it's hide and seek rules. You guys, uh, Ali Ali Oxen freed us. I think, I mean, this is also wrapped up in Charlie convincing the family that they'll turn into like fairies and stuff. So it's all sort of wrapped up in magic. He's an angel. So they think he's he has some sort of power. It's so bizarre to imagine all of this like apocalyptic preaching uh, scored to <laughs> lovely Rita, meet yes. maid. <laughs> yeah. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. So Bobby left the print on the wall to hopefully push police toward the group instead of the family and also wrote the words political piggy on the wall near the paw print, also in Gary's blood. You know who loves the Beatles the most is the Black Panthers. So that's (laughs) it's really the frame job is airtight. Well, they were they were referring to the rich and powerful elite, um, which Gary was not, but he was white as piggies. I like the Beatles song. So that's where Piggy came from, I right. guess. There's not a lot of logic here. After Gary died, the three at the house still, Mary and Sadie, a.k.a. Susan, a.k.a. Sadie, and um, Bobby went through the house and tried to wipe away all the fingerprints. But since they had been there for several days at that point, they missed a few. They don't seem like the most fastidious bunch anyway. No, not very thorough. They also stole a couple things they thought they could hawk, including Gary's bagpipes. And Well, those aren't going to fetch much. <laughs> they took his Fiat and Volkswagen bus back to Spawn to wait for the expected news to break that the Black Panthers had viciously murdered an innocent white man inside of his own home. This, they thought, would be the spark that would ignite Helter Skelter. So two days passed. And no report of any murder reached the family at Spawn. They were watching the news. They were just assuming that things would explode. And it didn't. And they began to get edgy. So Bobby decided to make the very stupid move of returning to the scene of the crime days later to see if the murder had been discovered. Yeah, famously what criminals should do. Absolutely. The murder had not been discovered. 
When Bobby returned to Spawn, he told the family he could hear maggots eating away on Gary's dead body. I don't know if that's how maggots work, but uh, it's nice imagery. Bobby, once on the scene, tried to wipe away fingerprints yet again. Again, didn't get all of them. With the murder weapon, um, which he had apparently just left at the scene, Bobby decided to stash it in his car, which was Gary's Fiat that he had stolen. So he <laughs> <laughs> he threw it in the tire well of the Fiat, the stolen Fiat, and just kept using the vehicle. Good. So that, that's not going to come back to bite him in any way. Mm-hmm. And that's why this crime is unsolved to this yes, day. And yes. we haven't heard of Gary uh, Hinman. Charlie disposed of the VW bus that they stole, and it's theorized that he probably used the proceeds of the bus's sale to at least make things square with the straight Satans so they wouldn't come after them. And in light of the murder, two followers who had secretly become a couple against Charlie's orders, Yeller and Bill, fled the ranch. The pair on the way out asked Patricia Krenwinkle to come with them, but remembering how easily Charlie had tracked her when she had left a previous time, she said there would be no point in trying to leave. So she stayed. The family lost two members. Um, Kitty Lutzinger, Bobby's pregnant girlfriend, begged her, begged him to take her away from the ranch, and he refused. Hmm. Uh, so people when- are starting to get either super into this or super not. When you say people, they lost two members, so they didn't go find those people. No, they had different priorities at this point. So people are kind of still free to leave if they're not in. I guess, yeah. But I think, I mean, Tex Watson left at some point, and he ends up coming back of his own volition. I think once they started being brainwashed by Charlie, even if they tried to leave, it was hard to break the hold. And many of the women even long after um, the events of the murders and the trial, were still Charlie Manson devotees. I mean, Squeaky Fromm. She was still a follower of Charlie Manson's well into the 70s. Sure, and at this point, Gerald Ford is only, I think, minority leader of the house. (laughs) Mm -hmm. On Thursday, July 31st, friends stopped by Gary Hinman's house to visit, but no one answered the door. That's when the group saw uh, clouds of flies buzzing through an open window, and obviously concerned, they contacted the police. Officers Paul Whiteley and Charles Gunther of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department answered the call, and what they found inside the Hinman home was horrific. The bloody paw print and writing on the wall was, of course, disturbing, but what caught their attention the most was the at least one clean fingerprint they were able to lift from the crime scene. It also became quite apparent that Gary's cars had been stolen, and an all-points bulletin was released for the Fiat and the Volkswagen. After Gary's body was discovered, things became especially tense for Charlie, and so, the family as a whole. Quote, He'd promised that Helter Skelter would begin that summer, and summer was waning. His efforts to raise sufficient money to finance a long-term relocation were unsuccessful. The Black Panthers might attack any minute— Two murderers, Lotsa Papa and Gary Hinman, might yet be traced back to Charlie and Bobby Beausoleil at Spawn. Charlie decided to take a short vacation of sorts um, to try and find new family recruits. Meanwhile, Bobby decided to take off in the stolen Fiat heading to San Francisco to try and evade the law. But he's in the stolen car. Uh, There's so many... um just similarities to so many different other cult stories mm-hmm. here. Um, like just any time you have a an apocalyptic cult, you know, well, guess what? To get the followers excited, you have to put a date on the thing, mm-hmm. and then as the date creeps closer and the apocalypse, you gotta push it out somehow, or you gotta ramp it up somehow. And you see that with the with what Om Shinrikyo and Heaven's Gate and uh, and and all those guys, and then the idea of just a relocation and pushing people further and further out. Um, you can you have to think of Jonestown. Yeah. I always think of Jonestown. <laughs> Never forget. So yeah, obviously it, Bobby's plan, if you can call it that, was very stupid. And that was proven when the car broke down near San Luis Obispo. So two patrolmen responding to the broken down car ran a routine records check on the vehicle 
and of course they were immediately notified of the All Points Bulletin on the car that was connected to a murder in Topanga Canyon. Oh, I see. I, I, did they find the gun? Because you'd have to be very dumb, I would think, not to just run out into the desert and throw the gun as soon as your car breaks down? It was a knife. Oh, it was a knife that he was hiding. Okay, yes. but still, I th- even more. Bobby was promptly arrested, and as you've noted, Sean, adding stupidity onto stupidity, the bloody knife he had used to kill his former friend was found in the car, still in the wheel well, it's, where he had discarded it. It's still bloody? Yeah. He didn't even clean it, Sean. He just forgot about it. This is up there with the <laughs> worst executed murders we've covered here. Mm-hmm. Bobby's fingerprints were soon matched to the latent left at the Hinman crime scene, and despite a series of increasingly convoluted stories offered by Bobby in desperation to evade blame for the murder, he was booked for homicide and transferred to the L.A. County Jail. No, see, I was watching his house, and then uh, he broke in, and I was just defending his ground, standing his (laughs) ground. Bobby called Spawn to tell the family of the arrest, and with Charlie still gone on his little road trip, a new family member named Linda Kasabian took the message. Linda, who will become a more important figure later in this story, had only joined the family earlier that summer, so real bad timing. Now, what was this road trip? Charlie's just riding a 4 by 4 across the <laughs> desert holding that sword in the air? Or? He's trying to find new recruits for the family because people are leaving and people are getting desperate. And he did find one girl who he will bring back, but wasn't super successful. No, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> so Linda Kasabian and her young daughter, Tanya, had joined her estranged husband, Bob, in Topanga Canyon in mid-June in an attempt to patch up their marriage, but it didn't work. Bob was living at the time with a man named Charlie Melton, not Charles Manson. Um, No, but trade one Charlie for another. Why not? (laughs) Charlie Melton was a hippie philanthropist who ran in similar circles as the family members. And it was at this Charlie's that Linda met Gypsy, Bobby's ex, and now a passionate member of the family. The women started talking and Gypsy told her all about the family and all about Charlie, her Charlie. Uh, He was a a beautiful man who everybody looked up to. Yeah, we call him the wizard. Does anyone call him that except Dennis Wilson? I love the wizard. I think only Dennis. I think that was just Dennis's nickname for him. Yeah, I call him the wizard, man. (laughs) Because he whizzes all over the place. He probably does. Probably. Um, Gypsy promised Linda that at Spawn, everyone would just love Linda and her baby and take care of them. So why didn't she just come to live there? And Linda agreed to go to Spawn with Gypsy on a visit, almost immediately hooking up with Tex Watson. And then coming out to find that her baby has been taken. (laughs) It's now being raised by the family. That's still to come. But Tex knew that Charlie Melton had money, and he encouraged Linda to steal some and then bring it with her when she and Tanya returned to join the family. So he's helping lure her in. This is exactly what Charlie wanted when he got guys like Tex. It was like another way to just lure the girls in and the followers in. Linda felt guilty stealing from a friend, but thought it would help lubricate her entry to the family by arriving with a wad of cash to contribute. So she stole $5,000 from Melton's trailer. I guess he's one of those people that keeps a lot of money around. Yeah, that's um, that's what? It's probably like 50 grand, right? That's a lot of money. And um, she absconded to spawn with Tanya. Only then did she actually meet the new Charlie in her life, Manson. And he was more than happy to take her donation, I guess you could say. He quizzed Linda about her life, and upon finding out that she had a valid driver's license, decided, well, she could stay. (laughs) Tanya, uh, who was an infant still, was whisked off to join the other family children in their separate area, and Linda was left to be integrated into the main family. Linda relayed Bobby's message to the family members that were at the ranch that evening, and the group debated how to respond to Bobby's arrest. Though he wasn't an official family member, he was still one of them, and Gary's murder was technically family business. They all agreed that Charlie would know what to do, so we gotta wait for him to come back. He arrived back at the ranch around midday on August 8th with new family recruit Stephanie Schramm in tow. The family immediately told him about Bobby's arrest, and he knew that this was serious business. Though Bobby had made the call to spawn to 
ostensibly reassure Charlie that he wasn't telling police about him or the family, the implication, it's the implication, um, was that if Charlie didn't find a way to get Bobby out, then Bobby might find himself feeling a lot more talkative. And Charlie had a big problem. Any murder that he could be connected to would lead to the maximum sentence for him, for sure, because he had such a prior record. And I think he's still technically on probation. And he probably thinks the man is out to get him in some way Mm -hmm. because he's such a big deal. Yeah. And not only that, but being arrested or charged would mean he would lose the meager bit of control that he had over the rest of the world. His cult. I mean, how do you return to that after being arrested? So everything was falling apart. But I'm guessing the answer is going to be more murder. Yeah. I mean, it's time to act. And it was time to really begin Helter Skelter. So next week, I promise, 100%, we will meet first the victims of the Manson family's August 1969 killing spree, and then, in the second part of the episode, investigate the circumstances that led to their horrific final moments, including the crimes themselves. Mm. Well, uh, we did get to some blood and guts this week, Carrie, not... Blood and ears at the very least. Not just having fun out on a fake cowboy set in the desert anymore. No, no. Things are getting real serious. Real serious, real quick. Linda, I mean, she's a good example. She arrives in mid to late June, maybe early July. And in early August, they're going on a murder spree. Yeah, so it's uh, that switch is flipped quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um. It you know I don't think I've ever gone into this story in this much in this high a resolution before. I think, but I, the more I've gone into it, the more I feel like it's necessary. You know. Well, it's always covered as if it's a serial killer. Charles Manson is I feel like lumped in with serial killers almost more than he's lumped in with cult leaders. I um, think it's more of a cult story than anything else. He never, unbeknownst to him, by the way, but he never kills anybody, as far as I know. But with his own hands, and uh, it's debatable. He thought he killed lots of Papa. Yeah, but, that's he, what I'm but he also didn't intend to. He he wanted TJ to do it, and TJ chickened out. So he was like, "Fine, I'll do it." Um, but yeah, he just wants to make other people do things. He's just a, like an L. Ron Hubbard. He's really like a non-Christian Jim Jones. I think, and it's not that he he doesn't want to kill people, or he he he's above it. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He's thinking of himself. It's the classic narcissist's thing of like, they can get in trouble. I can't get in trouble. Now, yeah. obviously, his record is much worse and, and he'll get in much more trouble, even for murder, than they would on a first offense. But he, I think part of it is also like, um, well, and you what can st- I get these people to do? You might still avoid a capital charge too. pass the capital charge off to somebody else in the event that you're all caught. Yeah, because at this point, California still has the death penalty. Um, but yeah, I think part of it is a weird sick sort of game to him. What can I get these people to do? He's already asking them, will you die for me? And I think on the same level is, would you kill for me? And to know that he has that amount of control over these people was probably very intoxicating to him. That's probably it even more. I mean, that's what all of this is about, right? Yeah. So now we have um, pretty much the the main pieces in place for our descent into the bottomless pit to experience the true horror the Manson family had in store. And, um, yeah, next week we will get into the Helter Skelter murders. Well, first we'll, we'll meet the victims. Um, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Ab- Abigail Folger, Steve Parent, and Rosemary and Leonona LaBianca. Um, the, these were all the people they killed just on August 8th and 9th of 1969. So we'll, we'll get their backstories and then... For reals, we'll we'll get into the crime. Okay, and then um, uh, Gerald Ford doesn't uh, doesn't take a slug until two weeks. Then probably <laughs> we're we're barely going to talk about. We might go over it in the Patreon, but I'm really trying to center this on 
this part of it, the lead up and into the trial, because what comes after feels very much like aftershocks. And I think talking about it in that way makes more sense, but maybe a Patreon of the assassination attempt might be in order. Squeaky. Is that what you think squeaky from sounds like? Yeah, sure. If you tickle her oh. or pin, what is it? Pinch her? Pinch her? Pinch. Pinch. What a weird old man. Yeah. So yeah, next week, Helter Skelter. Squeaky. <sighs> 3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. No news this week. Um, we're still deep in the weeds of, of Manson, and so I haven't really been looking at anything else. But um, there was a contestant for Mrs. America that I saw. Mrs. America? Mrs. America, yes. It's a, a married Miss America pageant. What? <laughs> Why? I, because pageants exist. And um, she was representing West Virginia and dressed like the Flatwoods Monster as one of her dresses. It was like a sort of drag ode to the Flatwoods Monster. Is this a generally silly competition? No. No. Then I love it. It's great. It, she wasn't wearing like a full-on like cryptid type suit. She was wearing this sort of like lime greenish dress or whatever. Um, but she she did confirm to the Flatwoods Monster Museum uh, that it was a tribute. Wow. Oh, the Flatwoods Monster Museum reported. Mm-hmm. So that's fun. We also, uh, you and I have gotten back into Pokemon Go, and that's fun and sometimes spooky with the little ghost Pokemons. Yeah. Oh, you, you're just trying to tie into a spooky topic? No, I just, I'm just i just sharing our, our newfound, old-found love for, for Pokemon Go. Well, yeah, no, that's a, a blast, and you do love a ghost type. You uh, mm. Yesterday, you stood up and, and, and <laughs> yelled aloud, there's a haunter down at the corner, and, and you ran out the door. Yeah. And I think I heard you know, your voice wafting back into the house, I'm going to catch that bitch. Mm, yeah. Did you catch that bitch? I did. He is now my buddy, um, and we are adventuring together. Very. Oh, actually, she. I named her Copia um, after Cardinal Copia of Ghost, the band. Thrilling stuff. Incredible moments. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Carrie. Absolutely. Uh, we saw Ghost. That was also spooky. And amazing. What a show. If you guys are at all interested in going to see Ghost perform, do it. It is such a great show. If you like even one of their songs. It's, Even one, it's just, it's a spectacle. And also, I mean, if you caught them on this tour, um, uh, um, um, Amon Amarth. Amon I always want to, um, Brian Posehn was on a D&D &D podcast where he had a character named Amarth Amon, and that's, I heard of that before the actual band, so I, <laughs> I always want to say that. Um, they're not Viking metal, they insist. They are melodic death metal, but just all their songs are about Vikings. Um, so they're melodic death Viking metal. I've never seen a concert where a man uh, fought um, Jormungandr with Thor's hammer before on stage. It, it was it was really something else. So, if uh, you like a good performance, if you're into anything spooky, if you like the vibes of like Alice Cooper and old Black Sabbath sort of stage spectacles of darkness i mean it's just so good i don't want to spoil any of the best moments actually publicly because but but there's some theatrical it's a really it's a great show so anyway that was that was fun um i think that's it for for uh, that's our equivalent of spooky news this week absolutely 
That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Still in awe of Carrie squatting that 666 number. Uh, please <laughs> use it and leave us some voicemails. We really will play them on the show. Um, and yeah, special thanks to those of you already joining us on our co- top couple of cop tuple, mm. top couple of Patreon tiers: Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Wolsey, Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira. We love you guys very much. Thanks for being part of the show. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.